and welcome to Settling the Score, the podcast where we discuss the great film scores. I'm Spartacus. And I'm Spartacus. And we have compiled a list of hundreds of film scores that are worth talking about, and we're assigning them to ourselves by random drawing. And for this episode, the luck of the draw gave us the 1960 epic historical drama Spartacus. Spartacus was written by Dalton Trumbo, based on the novel by Howard Fast. It was produced by Edward Lewis and Kirk Douglas, and directed by Stanley Kubrick. Andy, if that really is your name. Yeah, that's my actual name, that's true. Tell us what Spartacus is like. Well, John, that being your real name, Spartacus is, of course, one of the classic epics of Roman times with spectacular production values and a cast of thousands. Kirk Douglas plays the title character, who starts as a slave, becomes a gladiator, then becomes the leader of a rebellion. Laurence Olivier plays the scheming Roman senator Crassus, alongside Charles Lawton, who plays his rival senator Gracchus, Gene Simmons as the beautiful slave girl Verinia, and Peter Ustinov as the gladiator trainer Batiatus. Also, Tony Curtis is along for the ride as a musical slave who joins the cause. The movie follows the rise and fall of the slave rebellion led by the gladiator Spartacus, and it also shows us the political ramifications of this rebellion in the Roman Senate, where the senators Crassus and Gracchus are vying for the fate of the Republic. Good enough. Good enough. So, John, I've got a question I've been pondering. Are there any three-hour movies that don't feel way too long? Like, (laughs) can you think of some three-hour movies that feel well-organized, you don't feel like they've got a lot of lag, and they don't feel shaggy? What are some movies that qualify? I bet there are some. Uh, Like, I don't know. I remember having a good time with... uh... Return of the King when I saw that in the theater. Those are the ones that came to mind, those Lord of the Rings movies. I thought, well, they kind of pull it off. Yeah, I mean, maybe that's because, you know, I knew the story already and I was able to follow them tracking along what I knew was going to happen. I bet there are others out there. I bet our listeners are shouting some out right now. Yeah, I want people to write in and say what they think the tightest three-hour movie is. Obviously, this train of thought was sparked by my feeling that (laughs) this movie has some shagginess and bagginess to it but it also seems like well what did you expect of course it does that's just par for this course (laughs) it's almost hard for me to hold that against this movie in particular because that's the job they took on to make one of these long movies that ends up being kind of disorderly do you agree with that how did it land for you yeah i agree with that it landed uh long for me (laughs) i mean i definitely remember distinctly having the thought a whole bunch of stuff has happened like they've really gotten pretty far into the story and I looked at the time and there were still two hours left in the movie and I thought how could there be two more hours of this I think I know where that point is (laughs) it's at the end of the gladiator stuff the end of the first act that's one hour in right that's probably right yeah yeah we're introduced to Spartacus we see him doing some heavy labor mining and then he gets brought to gladiator school he meets Verinia then he gets sent into the ring to fight to the death and then there's a revolt and then the gladiators take over the school 
I thought all of that was really compelling, and I felt really with it. I thought, this is quite good. I didn't expect to be so engaged. And then that ends, and you really feel an act break there, and there's a title that says Rome, and now you get introduced to the whole second world of the movie in Rome, and I just felt like, it slows down (laughs) and spreads out. It's like, okay, we've got a much longer story to tell, and the rest of it feels different, has a different pacing, has a different flavor to it. And I can imagine at that point being like, okay, what do we got left? Oh, we got most of it left. <laughs> yeah, that's probably exactly when I did that. It's probably exactly when I had that thought. Yeah, and yeah, sure, I agree. There's definitely some good stuff in this movie. I think there's even some good stuff, you know, through that second part of the movie that you described. But yeah, it's spread out, and it's uh, it's a little hard for me to say exactly what I feel like my relationship to it is. <laughs> I mean, I didn't want to give the impression that I think the rest of it is bad. I also agree there's good stuff throughout. I just think that it starts to be bigger. It's like wearing a suit where the sleeves hang down over its fingertips, you know? It's like, there's <laughs> just a little too much fabric here. All right, well... Let me ask you a question, which I'm frankly a little nervous to ask. How, Andy, do you think that the music to this movie contributes or interrelates with these phenomena that you're describing about how the movie feels? Um, I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Okay, okay, few. I gotta say few that you said you don't know, because I also don't know. <laughs> There's something uh, strange where I didn't feel like I knew how to think about this music. And I guess what that means is that I had a hard time having it gel with the movie for me. No doubt there is a lot of really good music in this score. Alex North is a really good composer. But, yeah, I wasn't all the way with it, and I'm a little relieved to hear you maybe say that you felt similarly. I felt very similarly. Okay. I'm really on the same page there. I have some thoughts about what that might mean or why, or but it's hard for me to turn those thoughts into critical assessment one way or the other because <laughs> its relationship to the movie is odd and, I think, varied. Yeah, I think that it is sometimes in a tight relationship to the movie and sometimes in a very distanced relationship to the movie and it goes through so many different such relationships over the course of the three hours that it's very hard to condense a single take on this. Yeah. There's just so much of it. And I'm reminded, of course, how could I not be reminded of when we talked about Ben-Hur a couple years ago now, right? of which there was just so much, it's so big, it wants to be so much, and yet... Yeah, and yet... That score's attitude and approach was very consistent throughout. It could really be summed up. Yeah, there was a clarity to it, there was a self-confidence that it knew exactly what it wanted it to do, and was really very, very confidently doing it. Yeah, of course, I also, you know, spent a lot of time comparing this to Ben-Hur, which was the previous year, 1959. Right. I think they were in production at the same time because this production went on so long. I mean, they both took a long time to make. And I believe I heard that Kirk Douglas, whose baby this project was, you know, he made this happen. It was his production company that put it together, that he was basically making the whole movie to get revenge for not having been cast as Ben-Hur. And that the whole point of the project was to make a movie like Ben-Hur that was better than Ben. Yeah, and I think that elements of this movie are better than Ben-Hur, but I think that if we were still doing the shtick of putting these scores on a list, I think I would really want to put this score underneath the score to Ben-Hur. Well, this epitomizes why I don't like ranking things, because (laughs) they are really starkly different in a lateral way. 
I feel like Miklos Roja's approach in Ben-Hur is that of a showman who wants to make you feel various things, wants you to be impressed, Mm -hmm. wants you to be in awe, wants to tug at your heartstrings. These are all effects that are being delivered upon the audience. Now, obviously, to some degree, Alex North is doing that sort of thing because that's what this kind of movie demands. But I think his essential attitude toward composing and the art of filmmaking is, for want of a better word, artsier. Yeah. He is more interested in exploring the subject matter, the ideas, the interrelationships of his musical materials are of interest to him, and he has work he wants to do with them. Manipulation is not its primary agenda. Being the thing for you to witness is its agenda. Yeah. And those are so different in effect. And I can value both of them, but the way I value them is is so different. It's one thing to say, you know, come at me, scare me, make me cry, do it to me. And it's another thing to kind of go to a museum and look at things. Yeah, go to a museum. Interesting that you said that because I did have the feeling that a lot of North's music for this was kind of meant to be appreciated as art music in itself. I think I wrote down museum as one of my first notes right at the beginning of the movie during the main title sequence, which is a Saul Bass sequence. Another Saul Bass opening title sequence on our show. Yeah, another stylish title sequence with these tight close-ups. Parts of statues. Parts of statues of classical Roman art and engravings against a black background, sort of tinted different colors, and it's very chic and it's high. And you're hearing this music by North, which from the outset, there's a cerebral quality Mm -hmm. to the still images and to the composition. thing is communicating that it wants you to bring this kind of attention, this kind of aesthetic response to a Hollywood epic of ancient Rome, which is already an unusual proposition because that is not what a Hollywood epic of ancient Rome usually asks of its audience. Yeah, I think it's important you use the word attention. I think that a lot of the music that North writes demands more attention than a film audience can give it. It definitely demands more attention if you're going to comprehend it. Yeah. But of course, that's not what you end up doing. So you end up responding to that as a surface. What does that intellectual, sophisticated surface mean to you? And sometimes it had meaning for me, and sometimes it didn't have as much meaning for me. Yeah, I felt the same way. So that's an interesting comparison to Ben-Hur, because indeed there are some very similar subject matters being tackled in the movie. The idea of people going in and out of slavery, and also the idea that slaves are being picked out for their athletic prowess to entertain the patrician class. Uh, You know, there's some real direct comparisons. That's true. Which made me think of the rowing scene in Ben-Hur. We see a galley full of slaves rowing. The music, as we talked about there, is such a wonderful illustration of the effort and the torturous strain that being forced to do this fast rowing puts on these men. And the music has this clarity to it 
it marries with the visuals instantly, immediately. It can't not marry with the visuals. Right, yeah, exactly. It immediately becomes the same substance. They coalesce so readily, the visual and the music. I mean, perhaps this isn't quite a fair comparison because, you know, we single this scene out in Ben-Hur as a really superlative example of such a thing. But, you know, if you go to sort of the same subject matter in Spartacus, where these slaves are being trained to be gladiators, and, you know, again, they're being exploited for their athletic prowess. So here's some of the music that North writes for the gladiator training. It's cool music. It is, yeah. But I don't think it gels with the visual in the same way because it demands a lot of your ear. The thought I kept having about this North music is that a lot of things are piled into it. It's so thick and dense, not only with dissonance, there's a lot of dissonance, but there's multiple dissonant ideas happening at the same time on top of each other. It's just a lot to take in. And then when you're trying to take it in at the same time as a visual that has a lot to take in with, you know, men doing all kinds of exercises and fighting and... Jumping over spinning blades. Yeah, and there's clanking and you hear a lot of sound effects of the clanking armor and swords and machinery and... of a bit much. I think there's a lot of examples of this really dense action music in this movie that I kind of just don't know what to do with. Like, listen to this. The battle scene, the big battle. Yeah. I mean, stop yelling at me. Okay. It's very aggressive. It's very aggressive with its dissonance. It is. It's hard to imagine music more aggressive than this. And he actually built an orchestra that is, you know, it's like made of metal and spiky. You you could cut yourself on this orchestra. (laughs) It's got more brass than I think I've ever seen in one orchestra before. He has six trumpets, six horns, six or I think maybe even seven trombones, a bunch of bass trombones and two more tubas and it's just like a tank coming at you and then he contrasts it with mass winds yes in the shrieky register making bright bright noises and clanging percussion at the same time and it's the most barbaric and militaristic sound he could come up with i think were his words yeah and the thing is that all of those sections of the orchestra are each doing their own (laughs) dissonant thing at the same time. Yeah. They're all stacked and piled on top of each other. You really have to sit in front of this painting at the museum for a long time to like take it all in. To pick it apart, yeah. And another way that they're all doing their own thing is he frequently uses bitonality or polytonality where yeah. they're playing chords that are from different keys or just in different keys at the same time, which mm-hmm. in some uses is actually a standard gimmick to evoke the battlefield 
the first thing you hear in the main title, da-da, da-da. Uh-huh. It sounds like, oh, there's two different armies and they're each on their own tuning. And so you hear them, you know, it, it suggests space. But he really commits to that to the point where, yeah, it really starts to feel like clashing colors that are you're blinking because it's so intense. So let's jump back to one of these gladiator training sequences that happened early in the movie. We kind of have an interesting opportunity here because of the working process that Kubrick and North decided to take. North wrote this music actually before the film was edited so that the editors could edit to the music, but the orchestra hadn't yet been recorded. So he recorded demo tracks of this cue that we're listening to with two pianos and two percussionists playing a reduction of the same music, which is to say all of these notes that all of these instruments up and down the orchestral staff, all of them instead get given just to, you know, the 20 fingers of two pianists. When you listen to just the notes being played on the piano, without the benefit of the different instrumental timbres, you know, separating these notes to some degree, you can really hear, that's just all of the notes at once. Boy, what am I supposed to make of this? But, you know, in a concert hall setting or uh, just listening to classical music setting, I really do think that this is thrilling and rewarding music. I mean, don't you? Don't you think this is cool? I mean, it's pretty cool. Yeah, I do. It definitely is really cool. But I think the question is in the word gel that you were using, where you said it doesn't gel. Yeah. You know, might there be different ways that things can gel? I definitely had the experience at times in this movie where the extremely composerly complex textures did contribute to my experience. Yes, at times. In a way that I wouldn't necessarily use the word gel. It was at some kind of distance from the picture, uh-huh. but distance can have value. I was reminded of when we talked briefly in passing in a previous conversation about Stanley Kubrick using borrowed music, existing classical music in most of his later movies, and we said that there was an intellectualizing and distancing effect to that that he liked. Right. Because there is some value sometimes to being set at a remove from something, looking at it through your opera glasses. That's the way the director wants you to look at it. And so I recognize that Spartacus is the least Kubrickian Kubrick movie because he's kind of just a director for hire. It's not an auteur production of his part. Well, for that reason, he himself distanced himself from the finished product. He really didn't like working on a movie where he didn't have total control of everything and vowed never to do it again. Spartacus started out being directed by Anthony Mann. And for reasons that are not entirely clear, some people will say he got fired and some people will say he quit because there were too many cooks in this soup, namely Lawrence Olivier, Charles Lawton, Peter Ustinov, and Kirk Douglas all considered themselves authors and directors and minds whose opinions needed to be respected. And I think having multiple directors on set was probably unpleasant. So one story I heard was that Anthony Mann went to Kirk Douglas and said, you know what? I actually don't think I need this dress. I'm going to leave. (laughs) 
And another story <laughs> is that Kirk Douglas actually had always wanted it to be Stanley Kubrick and they found some excuse to fire Anthony Mann. Anyway, Stanley Kubrick entered this production after it had already begun, just, you know, walked onto the set, did his work, and then, yes, left it and tried never to talk about it because it wasn't his movie. Nonetheless, yeah. I do think that some of what he did bring to it was an interest in viewing all of what's going on at a greater distance than you would in a movie like Ben-Hur. I think that the philosophical and political issues that the screenplay wants to be about are sometimes helped by this music that is clearly thinking about the movie, commenting on the movie. It's not just trying to beef it up and heighten it like uh, Roja was doing. It's trying to come to terms with it. And at some points in the movie, I felt that that's probably what the movie wanted. It wanted me to be bringing a museum attitude. Did it ever work that way for you? Did you ever feel like, you know what, all of this complexity that isn't gelling with the image is nonetheless stimulating enough for me that it's worth something? Uh, Yes, sometimes it did, sure. Like an effective sequence for me, for example, is when Laurence Olivier and some lady friends show up to the gladiator school and decide that they want to see a fight to the death, two fights to the death for their amusement. And they don't do fights to the death at the gladiator school because it would cause ill will among the slaves. But Crassus is important enough senator that he can just demand it anyway. And so these women sure enough pick out Spartacus and some of the other gladiators that we've uh, met a little bit as the pairs that they want to watch fight to the death. Those who are about to die salute you. The first pair goes to fight while Spartacus and his opponent are sitting in this little waiting room where they're waiting to go out. And I thought this was some really good filmmaking. Like you were saying, this part of the movie was really compelling where the first fight to the death happens, but the camera stays entirely inside of the waiting room. And we see little glimpses of the fight through the cracks, through the slats of the walls of the place. And I think really insightfully, the music also stays inside that little room and is playing the contemplative broodingness of these guys waiting to die. Rather than playing the fight, because we've heard what fighting sounds like already. We've heard all this training music and stuff. So to hear this calmer music was a good juxtaposition, I thought, and effective. And then again, now when Spartacus and his opponent, Draba, the uh, Ethiopian gladiator, they eventually fight. Now coming back to this frenetic, artsy, artistic action music felt good to me. I mean, that cue is spectacular. Yeah. When it started, I thought, this is perfect. This is so satisfying. This sequence really is a standout. That cue for a gladiator fight is almost the best I could imagine it done. I really thought very highly of this one cue. Yeah, yeah, me too. I mean, again, it's a lot to hear. But I thought there was insight to the complexity there, and there's a meaning to the layering that is accessible. Mm -hmm. This cue is based on a little nervous fighters in the ring motif. 
that's just the sort of nerves and the action and the knife points of it. But this motif, it's used in canon, it's used at different speeds, does all of these intellectual things working its way around. There are also these sparks of the high dissonant chords that we heard in the training sequences and the percussion and off-kilter rhythms. And he is matching the action pretty closely. This is probably his closest to a traditional action scoring where on the sword strike you mark it with something in the orchestra. Yeah, he also matches this little interlude when the camera cuts away to the viewing stands and we see that these, you know, decadent patricians are having some other conversation that they can barely be bothered to pay attention to these people being exploited to death in front of them. I bought fire with oil. I purchased a sentence behind his back. I still think the tribe's going to win. And the music, you know, has this nice little quieter but still tense interlude in it that matches it well. And then he brings out in the bass and the low brass this chorale sort of figure, which is a theme that he has set up previously that whether or not we're tracking it, it corresponds in his scheme to the lot of the slave, the oppression of slavery. It's the theme we hear right at the beginning when we're introduced to Spartacus slaving in the mines. So in the gladiator fight, that gets laid in as this bed underneath all of the action, and it really seemed perfect to me. Here's a movie that wants us to be excited about who's going to win this fight. It can't help but want you to care about each knife jab. But the overarching point is that all of this is abusive. All of this is torture, essentially. The people in the fight aren't actually against each other, and the whole thing is tragic. And to be able to capture all of that in this complex orchestral texture and have it sound that way to the ear, that is how it sounded to my ear. And then the texture is also intriguing in these compositional ways. As a piece of orchestral writing separate from the movie, this is a really interesting composition. I love this bit where two groups of trumpets are playing the scurrying figure in close canon so that it's like they're biting each other, they're tangled up in each other. Great sounds in their own right, great correspondence to the action, great understanding of the psychology of the scene. I thought this is spectacular. And I wish that he had had all of those different ways of supporting the visual in other scenes where it's usually one or the other. Yeah, well, to contrast it, the next action music that happens is when, because of the fallout of having to fight to the death, this winds up sparking a riot in the mess hall of the gladiator school, which spills out and they wind up turning on the guards and breaking out, and this is the beginning of the slave uprising. This 
breakout scene is a really cool action scene, actually. All this stuff with the gates where they climb up the gates and then they knock them down at these metal gates with spikes on the top of them and they wind up turning them into weapons against the guard and then they put them up on the balcony and use them to climb up and it's cool stuff and again cool music but uh, this music first of all it is very low in the mix it's very hard to hear yeah I wish it had been louder and it is really competing against just the production sound the sound of the battle and all of the yelling and clanking there's yelling and clanking in the movie and then there's kind of also a lot of yelling and clanking in the music and I it was redundant didn't need to have that yelling and clanking reinforced to me in that way. It was hard to listen to. Hey, can I just take a quick aside to say something about that actor who plays Drava, Kurtekos' opponent in that fight to the death? Woody Strode. Yeah, Woody Strode. Do you know a cool thing about Woody Strode? Uh, he was an athlete before he was an actor. I know that. Yeah, he's such a cool guy. He was an athlete. I mean, you can see that he's an athlete. He was a football player. He was actually one of a few players who integrated the NFL the year before Jackie Robinson did in baseball. And then he wound up becoming an actor. And John Ford cast him in heroic cowboy roles in a couple of movies, which were sort of important in integrating cowboy movies, if you will. And because of that, Woody Strode is actually the namesake of Woody in Toy Story. It's named after Woody Strode. I thought that was cool. It's cool, yeah. He does, honestly, a very impressive job for someone who has, I think, three lines in the whole movie. He doesn't really say very much, but the character really lands. Oh, sure. He sort of sets the whole thing in motion. You know, what happens to Woody Strode at the end of this scene is, I mean, he gets impaled by a spear that a guard throws, but then Lawrence Olivier stabs him with a little knife up close and blood spurts in his face. And yeah. boy, that is rough stuff for 1960. It really is bracingly violent. And there are several such things in this movie that probably worth noting weren't in the movie until it was restored in 1991 and stuff that had been cut out for censorship reasons was put back in. So as I was watching it, I thought in terms of violence and sexual suggestiveness and just overall nastiness, this is really a lot for 1960. And then as I was reading up, I thought, oh, I see. I wouldn't have seen that. And, you know, the famous snails and oysters innuendo scene about bisexuality i wouldn't have seen it i wouldn't have seen it until 1991 you say this famous scene where Lawrence olivier is perhaps trying to seduce tony curtis who at the moment is his slave massaging him in a bathtub he talks about you know, some people like snails and some people like oysters and i like snails and oysters uh yeah that got cut <laughs> one of the censors suggested that maybe it would be better if they changed it to uh what was it truffles and artichokes <laughs> uh, but it wound up just getting cut Actually, because it was cut, the dialogue track of the film was lost, and in 1991, Tony Curtis was still alive, and he came back in to redub his lines, but Laurence Olivier, sadly, was not still alive. So, in this famous scene, it is not the voice of Laurence Olivier, it is actually who? Sir Anthony Hopkins. Yeah, doing a dead-on Laurence Olivier impression. Do you consider the eating of oysters to be moral and the eating of snails to be immoral? Yes, it's true. You don't notice it, although you might notice that Tony Curtis suddenly sounds quite a bit older (laughs) in this scene, but he only has a few words to say. Most of them are yes, master. It is all a matter of taste, isn't it? Yes, master. You know, on the Criterion disc, 
Howard Fast, the author of the original novel, is on there. And one of the interesting things about this commentary track is him not necessarily approving of this movie that was made of his book. And he levels a lot of criticisms against the movie missing the point, Hmm. missing the political and philosophical point. He says... He thinks this scene is silly because it's all there to try and depict decadence when, in fact, his sexual life is completely irrelevant to whether he is a bad guy. I think that scene is in there because Dalton Trumbo was fascinated by sex and you know what he could get away with and what he could put on screen. Yeah, I wondered if that scene was in there because Dalton Trumbo likes to write in the bathtub. So there's a lot of scenes that play in a bathtub. <laughs> That's right. Charles Lawton kills himself in the bathtub later in the movie. Well, it's kind of only intimated that he does that. But he goes off with a dagger towards the bathtub to do exactly what Robert Duvall describes in Godfather 2. That's right. The Roman senator whose insurrection fails has to go and do, and he gets Frankie Pentangeles to do it anyway. Probably Robert Duvall. Probably he had just he just saw this movie, Spartacus. yeah. So let's just mention what this music has been under this scene. The cue, Snails and Oysters by Alex North. Yes. There is a fair amount of ancient Roman source or quasi-source or scene-setting music in this score, and he has a very unusual approach to it, I thought. Yeah, he did a bunch of research into authentic Roman instruments of the time, which he uses some of, right? Yeah, I think he uses a lyre, a, a kithara, which is an ancient lyre. But he also, in this source cue in particular, is using another proto-synthesizer instrument. He used the novichord in A Streetcar Named Desire, and here he's using something called the andioline. That's right, which I think he brought back with him from France. Yeah. It's supposed to be like a cheap version of the Ande Martineau, which was the upscale French synthesizer. So this has both an archaic and a modern quality to it, which is, I think, pretty interesting. Yeah, and he's got the bell tree or something like it, this whoosh, an exotic sound. His idea of decadence, of the kind of sickness of the luxury of Rome, is to have these odd, exotic, and kind of hypnotic sounds. The bathtub water rippling over you, soothing you in an ominous way. I thought that this stuff was sometimes a little bit too prominent to just take it as atmosphere. But when it was atmosphere, I thought it was a pretty good atmosphere. It gave a disreputable feeling to everything that went on in these Roman scenes. So I would like to talk a little bit more about Stanley Kubrick and his approach to music, because this score is some of the last original music that's written for any of his films. His next film after this one, 1962, is Lolita, and that has some nice music by Nelson Riddle, the great jazz big band arranger, but, you know, it's certainly less involved than the score to Spartacus. And then his next movie is Dr. Strangelove, and that barely has any music in it. It has some riffing on when Johnny comes marching home, but it's used very sparingly, and that's about it. And then Kubrick's next movie in 1968 was 2001 A Space Odyssey. And as I think we talked about in our Star Wars episode, Alex North wrote a score for that and Stanley Kubrick decided to throw it out and just stick with his temp tracks. (laughs) And then that's it. That's the last time anybody writes a full score for his movies. And I don't know, I kind of feel like... There are parts of this where I wonder if Stanley Kubrick in Spartacus said, yeah, I don't know, this having a score in here isn't doing it for me. (laughs) There were definitely some sequences where I felt like, what piece of pre-existing classical music would Stanley Kubrick really have liked to have here instead? Because I can really easily imagine him thinking that. You know, this North music, it's too close to the matter at hand. It's too much 
about just this movie? You know, can't the music be about bigger things because of pre-existing associations. You know what I mean? Like the montage when the slave gladiator army is recruiting new people as they march across the countryside and incorporating them into uh, their way of life as they trudge along and there's life and death and training and all of this. And this is a long musical montage which plays with this kind of jaunty material that North has for the slave rebellion. It occurred to me to wonder, wouldn't Kubrick have liked to score this instead with, uh, I don't know, pick something? Well, the question of what you'd pick is a question of what is the meaning of the movie? What is the meaning of the scene? What are we stirred by and what are we relating to? And right. in the making of the movie, there was a great deal of debate never entirely resolved about whether the movie was about Spartacus, a historical figure who was just one man, or if it's about a Christ-like inspiration, a martyr to the eternal cause of freedom, and that what we're seeing here is an inspiration to the revolutionary spirit everywhere, which is indeed the spirit in which the novel was written and the spirit in which Dalton Trumbo wrote about it, because both Howard Fast and Dalton Trumbo were notably blacklisted, left-wing, communist-sympathizing authors who were the victims of the McCarthy era. And this movie is kind of a, you know, lefty, pinko version of a biblical epic which is a fascinating bizarre project the movie itself comes down somewhere in between some scenes seem to be kind of saying this is the grand story of all the oppressed who will always inevitably rise up against their rulers and other scenes seem to be saying like look at this kid getting squirted in the face with goat milk (laughs) (laughs) yeah well that see that's part of this montage i'm talking about where it's depicting the sweep of the itinerant lifestyle that this nomadic army is experiencing And yeah, I do think that this music kind of misses the opportunity to tell us why we should care about it, to tell us what the meaning of it is. I think it gets too tied up in, like I said, the jauntiness of marching along. Well, I think that Alex North, who was also pretty far to the left, I mean, he went to the Moscow Conservatory because he was uh, pretty into the Soviet Union. I think Alex North put a lot of himself into this score because he was sympathetic to its grand political vision (laughs) of the noble cause of the revolution of the oppressed. And I think that he scored a lot of these scenes, at least on the screen in his mind, this was music of the people, the glorious people, and their glorious march and their glorious uprising. I think some of that jauntiness is not a small-minded response to jauntiness. It is actually his attempt to put across meaning. It's just that the movie isn't always in sync with that meaning. And, uh, you know, there's evidence that Dalton Trumbo thought that Stanley Kubrick had made Spartacus too small. And Howard Fast thought that the whole movie was kind of uh, just Hollywood doing some Ben-Hur type stuff. But I do think that Alex North was aiming high on his own terms. I think this music is supposed to be like the heart leaping up at freedom. Well, gee, I don't know if this sounds like that. (laughs) No, seriously. Yeah. I was kind of surprised that a lot of this music sounds peppy. It sounds uh, kind of (laughs) cheerful. It reminds me a lot more than I thought it was going to of 
things like the Great Escape, you know, <laughs> Elmer Bernstein's famous jaunty British march for the determination of the jolly good chaps in the prisoner camps. You know, this kind of rat-a-tat snare with a tuba bass line sort of a thing. He was lacking a little bit of this sweep of history that, yeah, I kind of agree with Howard Fast and Dalton Trumbo that this is not quite getting to. Yeah, well, Alex North makes some very odd choices in that respect in Mm -hmm. terms of what idiom to be in to convey this. And he goes to a bunch of places, all of which are meant to convey, I think, the wonderful life energy that animates the slave revolt. There's the one you talked about, which is kind of a jaunty march, but he also does some stuff that reminds me of uh, The Magnificent Seven. There's some pure cowboy music in there. I mean, there's this cue, very Copeland, Elmer Bernstein kind of cue for one of the spectacular shots of their camp on Vesuvius with this recurrent irregular rhythm. Yeah, and Kirk Douglas here is riding a horse through the beautiful countryside and you see him going past people doing different tasks and trainings and things. And You're right, this is a different slice of life. It's a cowboy slice mm-hmm. of life. It sounds like a cowboy movie. And then he has yet another one which really made me raise an eyebrow while I was watching. What? What is he doing? Where he has these kind of Broadway chords, like added six chords. Uh-huh. Again, I want to use the word piling because, yeah, he's using some harmonies that are very much out of a jazz lexicon where you take the chord and then you kind of pile additional notes on top, the ninth, the 11th, the 13th. And I feel like these chords just have more notes on top of them than you think they should. You know, like the notes that end the main title music, also that end the whole movie kind of builds up and up and there's, oh, that that note is on top of that chord kind of a feeling. And that's a very kind of jazz school thought. Yeah, that sounds like jazz. It also sounds like Stravinsky. I will say I think that it is an achievement in his style as a whole that he did bring in such diverse influences. It's very strange to have a style that can encompass those chords. And also, yeah, the chords you mentioned at the end of the main title are maximally discordant. Yeah, it's basically stacking all of the notes on top of each other. It's really kind of an achievement in itself that he manages to have those harsh modernist sounds and the jazzy sounds and the cowboy sounds and the pretty music that we'll get to later. And he manages to make it all sound like a coherent personal style. I think here he's really advancing the kind of grand crazy synthesis that movie music is. You can hear in it, not in terms of dramatic choices, but in terms of orchestral and harmonic stylistic range. I think you can hear a lot of later composers. You can hear a lot of 70s John Williams and Jerry Goldsmith and people who came in the generation below him picking up the idea that, oh, the musical vocabulary of a Hollywood movie can be extremely eclectic. I think that's being done here in a striking way. Yeah, I mean, sure it is. I feel badly voicing such skepticism and criticism here because I really admire Alex North. Yeah, but I don't know. I just, I think that there are some choices he makes here that don't seem to be hitting the right mark for me. I mean, you know, going back to this montage I mentioned that has this jaunty march on top of it, 
To me, the giveaway that he hasn't picked a language to convey this sweep of what this montage should be conveying is towards the end of it, we see a couple very sadly burying a dead infant. And here's the music for that. changes horses in midstream to go oh 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 now a sad thing is happening and i think it's the wrong move because if this is going to be part of the montage have it be part of the montage the montage is telling you that here is the scope of life life and death and everything in between are contained in this nomadic journey that this whole army is taking and it's all part of the same tapestry is what I think it was shot to say. And this little scene is, you know, a part of that tapestry that he feels like, well, now I can't play the jaunty music I was playing before because now something explicitly sad is happening. I, I think it shows that he didn't get what the point of stringing all these things together was in the first place. Well, I agree about the effect of that. To me, it's more of just a bigger editorial issue with the movie. My first point, this is a baggy movie. Yeah. I think they filmed a ton of stuff and then they had this problem of what could stay in, how to tell the story. I was surprised in the bonus materials hearing about things that got cut out that I thought that was so crucial. How could you cut that out? Like apparently there was dialogue at the end of the first phase of the revolt when all of the gladiators are sitting around in the now conquered gladiatorial school and they're making some rich Romans fight each other. To turn the tables on them. To turn the tables. And then Spartacus comes in. He says, no, enough of this. We got to get serious now. Apparently in that scene, he had originally said, uh, made an actual speech to the effect of we can't just be rabble we have to organize we have to be an army we have to have a point we have to have a leader and i think i should be the leader hmm. because you have been sold into slavery but i've been a slave all my life i have nothing to lose and everything to gain and only i have the spirit that will animate this cause i thought how is that not in this movie <laughs> i missed that part also dalton trumbo in his notes says that when spartacus is walking through his slave camp the night before the battle in which they're mostly going to be killed and looking thoughtfully at everyone mm -hmm. and a little girl goes to her mother and says mommy when do we get to go home dalton trumpo said how could you cut the next line which is one of the most beautiful lines i've ever written where the mother said we have no home we're free and i thought yeah that only would have taken two seconds <laughs> wow yeah that's a good line <laughs> good point dalton i think that they were making increasingly mercenary calculations in the editing room as this movie neared release it went through many versions they moved the intermission from here to here they took out this scene they put that scene in they reshot a couple of things and I think that the final product has, yes, yeah, some dramaturgical errors mm -hmm. in it. And you are pointing one out. Whether it's Alex North's problem or whether... Sure. It, uh, who knows how it ended up that way. Yeah, sure. Well, but I think there are other dramaturgical problems that show up in the musical choices as well, which again... Who knows whose fault they are. But like, I thought there were a lot of spots that should have been scored that weren't. The speech that you just summarized that we never got to see Kirk Douglas making, I mean, gosh, I think that should have been in there and have some music behind it to connect with the emotion of it and to have that, you know, be a motivating force for the rest of the movie. There are a bunch of other examples of places where people are giving voice to the philosophies and the motivations behind what's going on. And they're giving kind of mission statements for their outlooks that don't have music that I think should have. Like when? 
oh, like, you know, the army finally gets to the sea, which is where they've been marching to. And we see some nice shots of them celebrating and having a dance in their camp. And there's some nice source music that he wrote for that. But I think it's a mistake to have that source music keep going into the following scene when the pirate that was supposed to get them the ships that they needed tells them, oh no, the ships aren't going to be there, blah, blah, blah. And they have this, you know, like vital strategy discussion. This is when Kurt Douglas realizes that he's been trapped and he's being forced to march back on Rome, which is not what he wanted to do. Like, don't you want the score to be able to put a sting on? Oh, you know, like, we must go here when he stabs the map with his sword. Hmm. The only other army in all of Italy is here. Like, that's an important moment and kind of trapped with this wallpaper resource music. And then, I don't know, maybe even more important is this juxtaposition that happens next where Kirk Douglas is giving a speech in front of his people, laying out their grim duty that now they have to go back and march and fight. Bring every slave at the same time, we see Lawrence Olivier giving a speech in front of the Roman brass and armies and stuff, proclaiming himself consul, is that what he does? You know, vowing that he's going to bring this slave revolt to justice. And they're each giving, you know, important summations of their outlooks and their thought processes. I just really, really wondered why there wasn't music for that. Yeah, it's not the kind of interest the score takes in the action. Yeah, those decisions combined with the questionable decisions to kind of compete with the cacophony of battle, with a cacophony of music, the decisions to kind of go for jauntiness instead of universality. I think there's just some questionable decisions. But when Alex North does what I think is his strong suit, which is sussing out the psychological layers of things and giving them voice, which is what I wanted him to do in those scenes I was just describing, mm -hmm. I think he does do that in some spots, especially towards the end of the movie. Mm -hmm. And yeah, sure enough, he does them really powerfully. Well, we can talk about those, but do you think first we should just talk about the big choice he makes? Oh, right. That is the reason this score is famous to most people? Yes. Well, obviously we need to, and it's amazing that we haven't yet. There's everything we've talked about, and then there is also the love theme. So let's talk about the love theme. For those of you who haven't been watching Spartacus recently, this is Love Theme from Spartacus. Easy to follow, easy to hear, easy to relate to. It is simple in so many ways. It's two chords, one motif, really the key motif of those first three notes, which are then immediately repeated. Back and forth between these two minor chords. It's like a simple pop song. It's very easy. It is you know, but again, he doesn't miss too many opportunities to really complicate it up a lot, too. <laughs> uh, 
<laughs> yeah, it's a simple melody, and it's a beautiful simple melody, and he gets a lot of great mileage out of it. But, you know, he's constantly having little twirly-whirly wind-asides. He has a lot of counter lines that play against the melody that really sound like they're doing their own thing. And do you not like that? I actually loved all of that stuff. In the framework of listening to this melody that we know exactly where our feet are on the ground, we know what we're listening to, then his skill and his inspiration for coming up with unusual, unexpected textures and filigree, and I could bask it and enjoy it. I did enjoy it. I did have a few moments when I was just listening to the music on its own where I thought, wow, that is, that's a really dissonant moment in this very sweet love lullaby. But it's true that in the context of the movie, when you hear them mixed against the dialogue and everything, it does very effectively become just like a sophisticated background that you can take its word for it and then just pay attention to the loveliness. And let's also be fair, he is not being indecipherably complex 100% of the time. There are some things in here that are simple and clean in ways that are admirable in themselves. I really liked the atmosphere he creates for the sequence after Tony Curtis's magic and poetry show where they... (laughs) What does he think singing means? What does this movie think singing songs means? They use the word singing and song many times to describe this. Sing, Sing, Antoninus. When the blazing sun hangs low in the western sky. Well, I'm not going to look it up, but I think there might be some kind of classical justification for doing yeah, this. Yeah, it occurred to me that that might be the case. It also occurred to me that maybe he was supposed to sing, but Tony Curtis didn't want to actually sing, so they just pretended that this is what it meant. Anyway. I mean, he was supposed to be a Roman slave, but he talked like this instead, so they had to work with that. Yep, there you go. Actually, John, I'm just going to read you now one of the things that Dalton Trumbo says in his commentary. Uh, He calls Tony Curtis a magnified nothing. (laughs) He says he wants to have it on the record that he considers him to be one of the least talented, most deplorable actors I have ever seen. Anyway, after Tony Curtis has made him get egg on his face, which he cleans off very quickly. And, and is this readily. the origin of the phrase, having egg on one's face? Uh, undoubtedly, it is not. <laughs> well, I don't know. It happened uh, in 73 BC, so maybe it is. Oh, I see. The original event of Spartacus getting egg on his face, not the movie Spartacus. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, well, that may well be the yeah. origin of it. John, you should look into that. Okay. Anyway, Kirk Douglas and Gene Simmons retire to the Glade. I don't know where they go. They go to some other indoor set that's supposed to look outdoors, <laughs> and they have a love together and Alex North writes I believe just a chord with a shimmer and there's like a mandolin and a string tremolo and I thought this is done with distinction and he's not overwriting or overcomplicating it's just he's cast a very nice spell over this scene you know things that can't be taught I know nothing nothing Yeah, I agree. I singled that scene out too. I think that's very lovely. And I think it's very lovely that he gives them some tender music that is, at first, not the love theme. Because we've heard the love theme a lot at this point, we should say. It's a very heavy association of, you know, she's on the screen, there's love stuff happening, we hear this. But it really was very refreshing to hear this placid and tender music happening that wasn't made out of this theme. Where a star falls and a bird doesn't. Where the 
sun goes at night, why the moon changes shape. I want to know where the wind comes from. And then, sure enough, the theme kind of works its way in as we go along, but very, very tastefully. <laughs> I thought almost all the use of the love theme was tasteful, sure. despite its, as you said, being used constantly. Yes. We hear a lot of it. The fact that it's so simple and memorable means that he is able to use it to make comments, you know, call it into play in sequences where Verinia is not on screen and we understand that it suggests his thoughts of her mm-hmm. or something about the significance of their relationship. When he goes back to the cells where he was kept as a gladiator after he's revolted and freed himself, and he goes back to where they first met in this horrible dungeon and you hear her theme even though he doesn't say a word he has no idea where she is we understand that this means thoughts of her memories And it's very effective because the theme is so clear. Then he does even more interesting things with it later where it shows up and we're seeing neither Spartacus nor Verinia on screen during the pan over the dead after the battle. Yeah, that was another one of my favorite spots. That is really evocative. Yeah, there's this mournful version of it as we're seeing all these corpses piled on top of each other, and it's got now some voices behind it. And it really has a very effective, unnerving and unsettling feeling. You know, like, what was this all for? What are we all fighting for? You know... Does love conquer all or not? You know, you really get the feels <laughs> from this. Yeah, and what you just described, that it inspires you to think, what is the role of love? How does love exist in this world? Yeah. That's really there and present. It's not a reach. It doesn't take extra thought after the fact to come to that. That is really how it feels. And that is very impressive to me when a theme can do that kind of, you know, it does some thinking for you and you end mm-hmm. up having this train of thought. An interesting thing about that particular cue and that voice, one of these demo tracks that was made before the full orchestra recordings were done is of what I guess was his original plan for that sequence, where you can hear that voice more clearly and hear what it's singing. It's singing some poetic text. Can you hear me, my lost one, whose name no one knows, where the seasons move so slowly over your grave, etc., etc.? fully composed art song in a very kind of high art song style which is such a high museum culture (laughs) kind of choice to make i was really struck listening to this demo at just how fully an art classical composition project Hmm. this was for alex north yeah that is very interesting here's a moment where i think that kind of artsy remove from the strict nuts and bolts of illustrating things, where it did wind up having an evocative effect, just as I think it does, as I teased before, in these moments of psychological turmoil that follow in the movie, which we should also talk about. 
But before we get there, I just wanted to say that, you know, this love theme is such a gem of a theme, such a sweet and tender melody that, uh, yeah, of course, it became a jazz standard. I just wanted to play a couple of jazz versions of the love theme from Spartacus. Yeah, please do. I think it was first covered by the saxophonist Youssef Latif, and this is a famous cover of it that he's got in the early 60s. Yeah, I think just the next year he picked it up. Yeah, that's right. great pianist Bill Evans, he covered this song three different times. Uh, my favorite one is on this album Conversations With Myself, where he overtracks three different instances of himself playing the piano on top of each other. So here's three Bill Evanses playing Love Theme from Spartacus. somewhat in the spirit of the complex textural decoration that you were describing that North does. He also kind of comes up with patterns and uh, yeah, that's true. additional lines to fill out these harmonies. John, do you know what Alex North's most covered composition is? <laughs> uh, I definitely would have guessed this, so I guess not. It's not, John. Alex North's biggest hit is something other than this. Uh, all right, tell me. It's Unchained Melody. Oh, I did know that. Ugh. Yeah, good one. It's by Alex North. That's right, this song, which probably should have been called I've Hungered for Your Touch or something, Yeah. but it's called Unchained Melody. Do you know why it's called Unchained Melody? Because it's the melody from the movie Unchained. Yes, it's because it's from a movie that no one, no one has ever seen called Unchained with score by Alex North, and he wrote this as the theme before it had lyrics. And then they said, can you give it some lyrics so one of the prisoners who is chained in this movie, not yet unchained, it's a prison movie, Uh can sing it in the movie. I always thought it was just unchained because, you know, the heart cannot be chained and it's off the chain, you know? (laughs) But no, it's just because it's the melody from Unchained. Yeah, I feel like this has a certain kinship with a theme from A Summer Place that we mentioned that Max Steiner wrote and that shows up in Batman. Right. You know, they're these, like, pop uber melodies that have been around forever. They're so much more famous than the movies that they came out of. That's true, yeah. All right. Anyway, I just thought it was interesting to think about that Alex North, for all that we're talking about him as, you know, the thinking man's movie composer with a sophisticated approach to everything, he also, this love theme that we're mentioning, and his biggest hit, a very simple, the basic chords of pop, feel your most basic pop feelings. He also could do those kinds of things, too. He also had a knack for that. Mm, Good point, Andy. I don't know if it is. So like I said before, Stanley Kubrick had this interesting relationship, interesting kind of love-hate relationship with music and music and movies. One of his early influences was the Eisenstein movie Alexander Nevsky, Mm -hmm. which has a score by Prokofiev, the great classical Russian composer Sergei Prokofiev, did some film scores. Kubrick became obsessed with this cue for a battle in Alexander Nevsky that Prokofiev had written. And the story is that he played the record so much in his house that his little sister came and broke the record over his head. 
because she couldn't take it anymore. You know, that technique I mentioned where North made these piano and percussion demos before he did the full orchestration so that they could have music to edit to, that was something that actually that Prokofiev did for Eisenstein. And it was Kubrick who suggested it to North, and he in particular said that, you know, I want you to listen to this battle music from Alexander Nevsky to inspire you for the battle music in this movie. And, you know, the battle itself, the filming of the big climactic battles in this movie have often been compared to those Eisenstein battles. Oh, I mean, it looks just like it in some of the shots. Also, in Alexander Nevsky, after the battle, there is a mezzo-soprano singing a mournful song over the fields of the dead. I imagine that that's where North got the idea to do that in the first place. He's really following in Prokofiev's footsteps there. Yeah. So Kubrick obviously had this love of Prokofiev. There's actually a spot in the movie where (laughs) there is some Prokofiev that is seen and not heard. Hmm. Because in that scene where the gladiators are waiting in the waiting room to go out and fight to the death, they're sitting there brooding about what's about to happen. Kubrick, in order to inspire the actors to have the expressions on their faces that he wanted, he actually played some Prokofiev music for them to listen to there on the set. So I found this article where one of the other actors who's in that scene tells this story. He says that Kubrick was the only genius I ever worked for, talking about the shooting of that scene in particular. And he says, rather than just talking and talking and doing retakes, he stopped everything and sent an assistant out to fetch a record and a record player. It was Love for Three Oranges by Prokofiev. So he goes on to describe how all of the different people in the scene have different reactions to hearing this music. And so the genius of Kubrick is that he was able to find this piece of music that would bring about the direction that he wanted for each individual actor. I just think it's fascinating that Kubrick had this classical piece ready to go that he just wanted to film people listening to, which is essentially what happened. The finished product of that scene is we're looking at people who are listening to a Prokofiev record, which is cool. Yeah, that's fascinating. And that scene does have a very strong effect of you feel the weight on them. That is a fascinating story. And before you turn off that clip, (laughs) let's do the sponsor break, right? All right. Yeah, that sounds good. Well, while we're listening to this, Prokofiev, gee, it sure would be cool if we could also look at the score to this piece of music. Yeah, it would have been cool if those gladiators had had the score to look at, but they didn't. No. But now you can. Yeah, we can. We can look it up quickly and easily on Encoda, the streaming subscription app for sheet music. Encoda is a service that gives you access to their library of sheet music, millions of pages from the top sheet music publishers, all accessible to you with your subscription to view on any of your devices, to play, to mark up, to study, including the suite from the Love for Three Oranges by Prokofiev, or the entire opera in Love for Three Oranges, or the parts for the orchestral players in Love for Three Oranges. Yeah, you know, my wife Becky plays violin in orchestras, and she has been able to use the Encoda app to look up her parts for some of the orchestral repertoire that she's performed recently. And it's just so handy to be able to do it on the go whenever you need it without having to carry around or spend the time and money to find the hard copies. It's all right there in their extensive catalog, which ranges from classical music to theater and pop music as well. It's a terrific resource. So go to your app store and download Encoda. That's N-K-O-D-A. Sign up for their free trial and check out their whole library. Yeah, do it. Thanks, Encoda. (laughs) 
Anyway, as for this love theme, I think it's very tender and very touching. It does impart a lot of feeling to the scenes where it appears. At the same time, in trying to make sense of the whole movie, I'm not sure what that feeling is telling us about this story. I was reminded of something I said a long time ago in our Robin Hood Corngold conversation where I said, look at the insight he's had to make the love theme the same as the patriotism theme because that's how this movie works. And in this movie, it's really quite the opposite. He has all of this slave revolt music, which is, as you point out, often quite exuberant, Mm -hmm. very positive music. But it's as though that's contrasted with the love theme. You're either in the political mode or the love mode. And I can't imagine why that's the choice, especially for someone like Alex North, who seems to have been on board with the political message. The message should be, you'd think, that the love force that drives us in our intimate personal lives writ large becomes a political force. In fairness, I think that the finale, the very end of the movie, does make a gesture like the one I was saying was in order, where the final scene is Verinia is showing the infant child to Spartacus who's dying on the cross and saying that he is free and he's going to carry on the cause. And during this, we do hear the love theme. We hear a particularly wrenching harmonization of the love theme. He remember you, Spartacus. Because I'll tell him... I'll tell him who his father was and what he dreamed of. So the implication is somewhat that what Spartacus stands for and what will live on after the man and the body dies is this love theme that she and the baby represent his legacy in the human spirit. That kind of works, and I think that that final cue is a good choice. I'm glad it ends on the love theme like that, but for much of the movie, it really plays a very different way. It's like it's saying, you know, nine to five, he's a warrior, and then he gets home to the little woman, and he's a lover. That's really what the music is doing, and I don't know why it's doing that. But it does it with great class. (laughs) Yeah, that's right. I mean, that's, I think, a good way of describing this score is that it's doing what it's doing with great class and skill, but maybe what it's doing could have had its decision-making interrogated a little (laughs) bit more. And maybe that does come down to Kubrick and the way that he thought of music, because evidently Kubrick did not like directing composers on his movies he got out of that game (laughs) you know like so i feel like maybe north was just in need of some direction that kubrick didn't feel like giving him you know as i've said many times on this show the relationship between the director and the composer is so important because they have to get on the same page about what story they're telling and it kind of seems like there was some misfires on that score here well i wasn't able to read anything about their direct one-on-one relationship did you hear any anecdotes did you read anything about that No, no no this is all speculative I find the relationship between Kubrick and North really fascinating, and the real crucible for it was 2001, which, yeah, maybe we should have a separate episode about that one day, about the classical pieces that are in the finished product, and compare them with the Alex North score, which has been released, and you can hear the difference. But about North's score for 2001, Kubrick is quoted as saying... North and I went over the picture very carefully, and he listened to these temporary tracks and agreed that they worked fine and would serve as a guide to the musical objectives of each sequence. He nevertheless wrote and recorded a score which could not have been more alien to the music we had listened to, and, much more serious than that, a score which, in my opinion, was completely inadequate for the film. So it kind of seems like they sort of touch base with each other at the beginning, and Kubrick had these temp 
tracks that he picked out, and then North kind of goes off and does his own thing. I think that's the point, is that he was especially committed to doing his own thing. Alex North never won an Oscar for Best Score, but he was awarded an honorary Oscar in 1986. And in his speech, he says... In composing music for film, I attempt to achieve the following goals. To meet the demands and needs of the story conflict and the interrelationship of the characters involved. And also, hopefully, contributing my own personal comment. And also, he hopes, his own comment. Hmm. I think that that is a notable characteristic of his intent and the seriousness and, uh, again, artsiness that he brings to this task. He wants to be adding. He does not just want to be supporting. And I think that, you know, in the case of 2001, not to go into details, but I think that the tracks he wrote took the temp tracks as models and then added, then really composed his own music on top of that. And to Kubrick, that was a betrayal of the intention. Yeah, I think that's really true that... North wants to be adding to what's on the screen. In his score for A Streetcar Named Desire, we talked about how he was a real dramatic partner with the script and the acting. And he was taking us to psychological places that were important to how the whole movie landed. I think he does similar things in this movie. In fact, some of the stuff towards the end that I've hinted at before were actually, I think, very evocative of things that he did in A Streetcar Named Desire. Mm -hmm. And they do really add to what's going on. So here, Verinia, after this battle, she gets scooped up by Laurence Olivier, and he tries to now seduce her because he's obsessed with Spartacus and wants to fully possess what Spartacus has possessed and prove his own worth to himself and what have you. He's not doing a good job of it. Uh, She doesn't like him. I want your love, Verinia. think by threatening to kill my child you'll make me love you? I did not threaten to kill your child. But he kind of goes to a similar trick that he did in A Streetcar Named Desire when Vivian Lee was remembering her past and the memory of her past juxtaposed against her immediate present was represented by this kind of ghostly overlay of certain music against a different thrust of music. And he does a similar thing here. And the thing that is being ghostily overlaid is the love theme. And it happens in this very, very subtle, very almost subliminal effect. You can hear it just kind of ringing around the edge of the sound very faintly. And it has absolutely this psychological effect of like you can hear her thoughts. And a piece of metal. Wine, of course. Easy. <laughs> I did not command you to eat. Why did you? Just in sound, there's something so evocative about mm-hmm. the way he sets this up. Yeah. It's got that ondioline in there, and it's got different layers of the strings section. What the orchestra is doing that gets interrupted is decadent, wealthy Roman music that is almost the same tune as some source music we heard way back at the beginning when Crassus was hanging out at the gladiator school before the fight. We heard this pseudo-Roman tune on an oboe or a, mm-hmm. like, slightly more exotic wind instruments. And then he sets up the same Crassus's pad music. Yeah, this was his jam. This is his jam. This is, you know, hang with Crassus. It's going to sound like this. 
And then he, indeed, as you say, it suggests that her thoughts are overlaying it. And I enjoyed it. I enjoy the effect. It does sound very much like Streetcar Named Desire. It did occur to me that the effect suggests a kind of ambivalence or being torn between two worlds or something on her part or his part or someone's part that isn't really what's happening in the scene. She's in no way tempted by this life, is she? That's not quite how I read it. I think at this point she thinks Spartacus is dead, and so it's like she is seeing his ghost. Just the thought of him is pulling her away from even paying attention to Laurence Olivier. I suppose, actually, it makes more sense if you think of it from his point of view, which I wasn't inclined to because, you know, you're more sympathetic to her, of course, but from his point of view, he's trying to assert his world, and her, you know, stronger force of love keeps interrupting it. Yeah, I mean, similarly in Streetcar Named Desire, we kind of had different ways of interpreting these psychological layers being depicted in the music, and I think they're all valid. And I think this really is where North shines, using these kinds of techniques to tease out the turmoil, you know, what people's thought processes are. Like I was saying before, is this sort of stuff that I wished he had done more of, you know, and then... I think he stays in this really evocative and effective mode for the scene after that, where we now see Tony Curtis and Kirk Douglas, and they are prisoners and they're about to be crucified. Spartacus sort of gives his statement of purpose and his philosophy and motivation. And yeah, that gets uplifting and tender and easy to listen to music that conveys a mood. I believe what this is, is the main title played very slowly and solemnly, but it's almost the complete development of Spartacus's theme that we heard at the very beginning, but now the strings have it and they're giving a slow treatment to it. Are you afraid to die, Spartacus? Hmm. No more than I was to be born. Yeah, well, just doing it slowly and letting us really hear all the notes that are happening and associate them with this emotion really landed. And then Lawrence Olivia shows up and he's mad because Verney doesn't like him. And North kind of takes these dissonant pads that were in the scene with him and Verinia and brings them outside now and kind of escalates them and just makes it so clear what is going through his head. Pentaninus. The night passes slowly, doesn't it? I mean, make no mistake, North is good at this stuff. He is, and I saw him saying he's not sure how he feels about spectacle. He's not really inclined toward the spectacle-oriented score. Obviously, he was obligated to do that in this movie, so he found his take on it. But yes, that he prefers psychologically insightful music for psychologically complicated situations. Well, That's what we praised all through Streetcar Named Desire. And when he finds that in this movie, he does do a beautiful job of it. I am surprised that he didn't find it more. Well, that's where I think a director could have helped who didn't. So let's just have talked a little bit about Spartacus's theme, the main theme of the movie. <laughs> I guess we should. Because you know who's the star of this movie? Spartacus. Oh, I'm Spartacus. You know, the I'm Spartacus scene 
which it's a lovely screenwriter concept. It's memorable. It's a neat idea, but it doesn't go anywhere. Well, that's a good point. <laughs> they just crucify all of them and then figure out who Spartacus is. Yeah, I mean, just in case you haven't seen it or haven't seen it parodied, after the battle, Spartacus's slave army is finally defeated, and the prisoners are told, if you give up Spartacus, then we won't kill you. We're going to crucify everybody if you don't tell us who Spartacus is. So Spartacus stands up to say that he's Spartacus so that he can spare all of his comrades, but everybody beats him to it, and they all start standing up and yelling, I am Spartacus, I am Spartacus, so that they don't know who is Spartacus, of course. That's right. To show their solidarity, to show that the revolution lives in every heart. And yeah, they all get crucified for their trouble. I'm Spartacus. I'm Spartacus. I'm Spartacus. I'm Spartacus. I'm Spartacus. Anyway, the music you hear under it, rising to this climax where he sheds a tear at realizing that they're all together in this, is Spartacus's theme. A nice slow statement of it, but we've heard it every which way. Every which way, thank you. We've heard it not only every which way, but beyond. We've heard <laughs> more than every which way. Spartacus's theme definitely starts dun da da da. That is for sure that it starts with those two rising forks. Yep. But then it does a bunch of different things. It does more than one thing after that. It gets played on a bunch of different instruments. I think the very first time we hear it in the titles, it's introduced on timpani, which you don't usually think of as a melodic instrument. No, it's not. It's an astounding, truly creative choice to put the melody on the timpani. It's exciting. It has a great sound. But in the course of the movie, it's not a good way to explain to the audience what a tune is. It's hard to hear what it's doing. And also, he's spread out the tune here so that you can't tell exactly what happens next. What it's playing is da-da-da-da-dun-dun-da-da-dun-dun-da. But then he has another completely different version of it that you hear in the second half of the main title where it sounds like it's going to be yeah. a fugue or something. It's multi-voiced. Dum, 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 dum. But then... Completely different. And then that develops on to this next idea with these chords. Dun, 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 dun. I guess I want to say about this that all of this composing is skilled and interesting and appealing to the ear, but it's long ideas without repetition mm -hmm. that are in direct competition with each other for your attention. Well, yeah, I mean, maybe this is a good ending place because I have the same exact attitude. Yeah, this is incredibly skilled composition, praiseworthy composition, but I think that it is sometimes missing the mark of attaching itself to the movie and to the deeper meanings of the movie. Yeah, I mean, like you said, there's a lot of things in the music itself that are competing for your attention. And when that music that is internally competing for attention 
is put up against a movie that also requires your attention. Like, you've only got a certain amount of attention. You know, we were talking about North wanting to add to what was happening. Sometimes it's really called for, and sometimes it really works. But you can't add to everything. You know, the glass only gets so full. I guess that's my closing statement. Well, first of all, I want to say this thing that I should have said a while ago. In terms of him being more clever than the audience can appreciate, here's my observation that I didn't see in any of the analyses that we looked up. No one seems to have noted this, even though it's fundamental to the score, that the slave theme that you hear at the very beginning, da 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 yeah. da And then you hear it in the middle of the gladiator fight. Right. You hear it when they're um, being marched to their crucifixion, I think. Yeah. That theme is the second phrase of the love theme. Oh, gosh. The love theme is a slaves in love theme. Da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da. <laughs> How did I not hear that? Well, no, apparently no one has heard it and I'm the first. <laughs> Obviously that's not true, but I'm saying this just goes to show yeah, that how dense it is. Yes, exactly. The density of thought and composition here does not correspond to the comprehension of the composition. And I actually, once I saw that was sad that it hadn't been spelled out because it's <laughs> a good idea. It's a good idea for the love theme to be a development of the slave theme. That has real meaning. And if I had felt it, I would have been glad for it. Yeah. That's right, if I had felt it. If Kubrick had felt it. Yeah, so I am led to understand that Kirk Douglas gave Alex North, in one place it says 13 months to work on this score, which surely, (laughs) surely is the longest composing schedule any film composer has ever had. It's a long one. It's a long one. That's a whole year of your life in which to ruminate about the project, to try things out. I saw Alex North saying that this is the project into which he put the most blood, sweat, and tears, and it's also the project on which he threw out the most pages. Hmm. Because when you have a year, you know, you hold yourself to ever higher standards. and You can feel in every bar of the score that he cares about it and is trying to make a thing of quality. And that is something to celebrate. And there is music worth celebrating here there is no churning it out in this score he is composing Mm -hmm. all the time there is more composing going on in this score than i think in any other movie score i can think of yeah i mean he composes so much that he has to do it on top of itself yeah there's parts where it's like two orchestras playing yeah which again what am i supposed to do with that (laughs) while i'm watching a movie go on like i said earlier it's as though they said what if one of these biblical epics were made by some left-wing intellectuals what if this fundamentally middle brow kind of project (laughs) was done in a ambitious, sophisticated, edgy way. That's a weird proposition. It's just weird. I could listen to an extremely artsy score to an extremely artsy movie, but this movie, at least half of its DNA is the same DNA as Ben-Hur. And it doesn't know what to make of this music, so I don't know what to make of this music. <laughs> yeah. There are people who say this is the greatest score. There are people I think, hmm. who would have thought that this should have been on the AFI list. I can understand for a certain kind of film music enthusiast why this would be the greatest score because it is the most cared for, lavished over. It's the highest mountain of skilled composition that I have seen in a score. But that's a different standard than the one that we have been bringing in this show. Yeah, but, you know, a criticism that occurs to me for a work that is the highest mountain of, uh, what did you say, the most composed score that there is. A criticism that occurs to me, which I think is the first time it has occurred to anybody to use this criticism of music, is completely original, and I'm going to say perhaps 
too many notes. <laughs> <laughs> I think just by a little bit, there are too many notes. I guess. I mean, if the listener could see me, I'm shrugging because, <laughs> you know, I like I liked some of that stuff. Yes. I liked that I was at a museum. I like some of it. <laughs> right. Yeah. That's a better place to end. I like some of it. All right. Uh, I certainly like some Good. of it, too. I certainly. Let's say that with definitive surety, we both definitely liked some of it. Agreed. Agreed to agree. <laughs> Should we do the drawing? Yeah. All right, Andy. Let's find out what's up next, because I want to do something different. I would like to do something different, too. Okay. I dare you to find something that's the same. <laughs> Everything is different, but let's do something shorter. Something shorter would be nice. I hope the bucket cooperates. Mm-hmm. All right. I've got the lottery ball machine here. Let's crank it up. Let's get some tense action music going. Uh-huh. All right, I am sticking in my hand here. Hope nobody chops it off. Yeah. Pulling out a ball. And it tells me that the next score we will do is... Rocky. Ah, cool. <laughs> 1976. Score by Bill Conti. That is different from this. You got your wish. Well, I mean, there's people fighting in it. Oh, that's true. There's gladiatorial combat, I suppose. But yeah, this is a different movie. I've seen Rocky, but not for a long time, actually. Yeah, I saw it, uh, you know, 10 years ago, probably not since then. Yeah, this is great. There's a whole other kettle of fish. I'll enjoy this. Will you enjoy it? I don't know. We'll find out, but I think I'll enjoy it. Yeah, it's like a different cultural space than I think we've been in for any show so far, right? Yeah, maybe so. I mean, we just did... Our last episode was another 1976 movie, The Omen. Yeah, but uh, <laughs> 1976 contained multitudes. Yeah, well, this one won Best Picture, so how about that? That's great. Well, I'm already humming the theme in my head, but we're not going to play nope. it now. You've got to tune into the next one to actually hear the theme. We are instead playing this music from Spartacus, which, as you know, means that the show is almost over. Ah, <sighs> what a relief. As Gene Simmons says to Kirk Douglas at the end of the movie, please die already. <laughs> she does. She does say that. Maybe it's time for this episode <laughs> to die too. Oh, it's sad. It's sad. It's grim at the end of this movie. Let's not. It sure is. Let's not resemble Spartacus. All right. Anyway, if you like the show, leave a review on Apple Music Store, <laughs> Podcasts app. Something. What is it called? Yeah, I don't know. It's not called iTunes anymore. Just leave us a review. You'll find where to do it. Leave us a review immediately underneath the podcast. If this were a video, we would now be pointing down and saying, like and subscribe. (laughs) John, point down. Point down. Yeah, there's some links in the description you can can click on. Yeah, I want to see all your comments. Tell me if you've ever done something like this. And send us tweets on Twitter at ScoreSettlers. Yeah, we keep getting cool suggestions for things to throw in the bucket. Some of you might be thinking, well, you haven't done mine yet. Are you really putting them in the bucket? We are really putting them in the bucket. There's just so many in the bucket. And you know how the lottery balls are. They take their time. They take their time coming around. But they will, soon enough, we'll be doing reader suggestions, I don't doubt. No, no doubt at all. All right, Andy, I'll see you back here next time, no doubt. No doubt. See ya. I don't know. No no doubt now sounds weird. As you've pointed out to me several times about the ending, whatever. (laughs) We just ended. (laughs) 